Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. We're going to devote a lot of time this morning to literacy, a big effort to help kids with reading, a national effort that started right here in Columbus. I'll talk with the executive director of the organization behind that effort and somebody who owns several businesses in the area that is also heavily involved in that effort. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers information about the pandemic, features an interview with the nation's new transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, about the COVID-19 relief package just signed by President Biden, and offers up a salute to first responders and others who've played a significant role in combating the coronavirus. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, Amy Hoying, who is the executive director of the Second and Seven Foundation. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Second and Seven Foundation is. Yes, so the Second and Seven Foundation's mission is to promote reading by providing free books and positive role models to kids in need while encouraging student-athletes to pay it forward. We have been doing this since 1999, and... I'm proud to say here in 2021, our mission is stronger than ever. And this started locally, but has gone far beyond that, right? Correct. In 1999, three former Buckeyes, Ryan Miller, Mike Vrabel, and Luke Fickle, all started the foundation. Um, They wanted to continue living a life of service and paying it forward when their days playing football for the Buckeyes um, were over. That was something that was instilled in them then. And so they held a small football camp, and they raised enough money to buy books to provide all of the second graders in seven schools with a book. And that is how the foundation got its name. Um, They did some research at the time, and they um, saw some statistics about second graders and reading and how important that time in their lives was as far as making an impact for future success in school and in life. Um, So they decided to focus on second grade. Um, And then the seven schools and all being football players, knowing that second and seven is a key down and distance play, um, they thought how perfect and how fitting. Um, Fast forward to where we are now, and we've been um, blessed to give away over half a million books through the years in um, 26 states across the country. Wow, that's incredible. It's so neat because... You know, when you've got Buckeyes that were going out talking to these kids, that is an immediate fascination with them. And it's a lifelong memory, I would think, of connecting that moment with the importance of reading. Yeah, and that's our hope. That hope is that those moments with student athletes, you know, it started with three football players, but now we have every team at Ohio State. And then not just at Ohio State, we have local high school student athletes and college student athletes. Um, And when they walk into a second-grade classroom full of eight-year-olds, it's it's a moment that they they look at those student-athletes like they're superheroes. And for them to say, yeah, you know, we're part of this team and, you know, all of them do well in their sports, but if they didn't read and do their homework and get good grades and work hard in school, none of that would be possible. They tell them on their readings, um, you know, look, kids, if we, if we don't get good grades, we don't get to go to practice or compete. Um, so school comes first. And we're hoping we create those moments that are impressionable for those kids where they think, you know, they can look at these guys as heroes and as role models and say, you know, I want to be like them. And, and it all starts with reading. Talking with Amy Hoying, Executive Director of the Second and Seven Foundation. 
Before we get into more about that, uh, what kind of impact has the pandemic had on your organization? Um, So we are so proud to say that we've still been reading. Obviously, the impact, uh, the negative impact was just gathering. So we couldn't go in the classrooms. We couldn't do the high fives and hugs that we love with the kids. Um, But as soon as school shut down, we knew we had to do something. And so we... um, we said, let's do virtual readings. We had student athletes calling us saying, you know, my season was canceled or my game was canceled, but can I still help with second and seven? And we just wanted to reinforce to them that their sphere of influence and their, their um, position as a role model in the community was still as strong as ever. So we have Zoom meetings and Zoom readings and virtual readings with kids, student athletes from anywhere across the country are Zooming in with kids, and they can do a reading online. Um, so I'm proud to say that our readings have continued, and they've continued really strongly. These readings are great because kids see, oh, wait, these student athletes, they're on the screen too, and they're learning from home too, and they're, they're in, this, in the same boat we are. So it's really been so inspiring to see how resilient these student athletes and these second graders have been. Um, And it's it's been an amazing year. So we've shipped our books continuously all throughout 2020 and into the 2021 school year. Um, And the readings continue. We have multiple readings daily with kids all across the country. And that kind of activity is more important than ever because the statistics and the studies are showing that kids really are struggling academically during this time of hybrid or at-home learning yeah yeah it's it's, we're really worried about you know where kids are going to be you know there's so much talk about where they're going to be as far as reading and just overall academically but then also the mental health in this and so you know we're we're very well aware that we're just a small spoke in the wheel of all of these people and organizations that are trying to help these kids and we're doing everything we can to, to give them opportunities to be successful this year. And, um, you know, we, we, we're doing everything we can to help, and we really think that it's making a difference. Your website, secondand7.com, uh, all spelled out second and seven, is neat because uh, when you click on the banners of topics across the top, a, a reading statistic pops up. And, and under your mission statement, it says almost 50% of Ohio's children live under the poverty level and receive free and or reduced lunches. And you've got others that talk about how kids who don't learn to read are much more likely to end up in jail or prison. Yeah, it's, you know, the idea of reading and and, and our mission, um, a lot of times people get a, a soft image of, oh, that's nice, they get books and they get to read, but I don't think people realize what a crisis we have with literacy rates. And, yeah, the schools, you know, in our backyard that are a lot of them, you know, an indicator of free and reduced lunch a lot of times for us is an indicator that's the school where we want to be because we know those those families might be in need. And we know the statistics as far as age-appropriate books that are in homes in those areas, and often there are none. And for some of us with kids and with books in our homes, that's really hard to believe, and people can, you know, kind of you take for granted um, that someone this close to you lives in a home or in a neighborhood where children don't have access to books. So, you know, we always want to find those kids, make sure they know, um, find those schools, find those teachers, and make sure they know that we're here as a resource for them to get books in the hands of kids who need them the most. 
You mentioned that three Buckeyes founded this. Uh, what was the spark that created this and, and also your involvement in it? What is it about uh, this kind of thing that is so luring to you? So, um, first of all, for Ryan and Mike and Luke, um, you know, I can't speak for them, but I've heard the story enough to know that they, um, during their time as Buckeyes, were asked from time to time to go read with kids. And they would go, and it would be something that a coach or an advisor or a teacher or somebody would ask them to do. And they'd kind of go as if it was, you know, one more thing on my calendar. But then they would get there and see the impact that they had just spending 30 minutes, 45 minutes with the classroom of kids, how much it meant to these kids. And it, and it changed their whole day. It changed their whole attitude. It changed, obviously, their lives. They realized that, you know, Spending time with these kids and giving them a book really made a difference, and they wanted to continue that. Um, and they and they and they have, and I think you know, Second and Seven has grown beyond their wildest dreams. I was blessed to get involved early on. I went to Ohio State and graduated with them, and knew them in college. And I couldn't think of a better place to be right now. Um, what we do at Second and Seven combines, you know, all passions and interests I've ever had. Um, we do write our own books, so I've been helping to write the books for 14 years. We write a new book every year, and those are the books that we give out to the kids. So um, I was happy to help get involved, and that was just locally at the time, getting Ohio State athletes. I couldn't wait to um, you know, go into the classrooms and read with the kids and with the student athletes. And then it just kept growing. It just kept growing and growing, and coaches or student athletes would move on to other States, other colleges, other universities, and say they'd call us and say, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm now coaching here. Can I do this program here?" And we'd say, "Absolutely," and we'd ship books there, and it just kept growing. So I can say, you know, it's grown beyond any of our wildest dreams. But we just feel so blessed and so fortunate to be able to still be making an impact. That's tremendous. Uh, talking again with Amy Hoying, executive director of the Second and Seven Foundation. What about uh, events that? take place during the year that were probably canceled last year during the pandemic what's on the agenda for this year yeah so i would say probably for us um, one of the most heartbreaking things was canceling our football camp so when ryan and mike and luke started the second and seven foundation in 1999 it all started with the funds that they raised from that a first football camp so that football camp had continued for 20 years and last year, taking that off the calendar, that one stung a little bit. But we are proud to say it's back, and we are going to be back together again this June. Um, you know, I think at that first camp, they maybe had 40 kids. Now we have upwards of 300 kids that wow. come to our camp every year. It's three days of football fundamentals for boys and girls. It's a non-contact camp. It's a lot of fun, a lot of character building, a lot of um, amazing volunteers and coaches from the community are a part of it and it's just really something that's kind of a flagship event for the second and seventh foundation so we're excited to bring that back for 2021 so we to this day anyone can sign up and register for our camp our football camp is a fundraiser and then we you know use those funds to support our reading program throughout the year that's excellent Uh, i also wanted to ask about how just the folks in the area can get involved in this can they do it Absolutely. So our website spells out a lot of a way, a lot of ways people can get involved um, from our events. Of course, there's usually an opportunity to, you know, come to events. If we have a fundraiser throughout the year, we've had, we have golf outings, um, one in the spring in Northeast Ohio. We have one in the fall in Columbus. Um, 
we have some other. We're still kind of waiting to see how things go this year as far as gathering restrictions, if we can do another event, um, and volunteering even for the reading program. So we're doing a lot of online still, but, of course, student athletes, um, college and high school. So if your kid's a college or high school student athlete, they can easily get online and sign up to read to kids and be a part of this. Um, and we encourage that um, because anyone can do this. It's such an easy program to plug in. Also, if you're a teacher or administrator of a, in a school or know of someone who is, they could get online and sign up and we can find some athletes to read to your community. And for uh, this month, Jersey Mike's Month of Giving has singled out your organization locally. Yeah, it's our relationship with Jersey Mike's has been incredible. We were uh, blessed to start this partnership um, in 2016. And since then, they've raised well over 200000 almost $300,000 for our organization since wow. the beginning. And I can't say enough about the team at Jersey Mike's and who they are and just the culture of the company from every single person we've, we've worked with through these past few years. Um, and we are just so grateful, so grateful for their support. And we'll be talking with them in just a few moments here. Amy, if folks are wanting more information about your organization, where do they find it? Yeah, so our website obviously is second second and seven, all spelled out, dot com. Also follow us on social media. You'll see pictures of readings, of kids from readings, of student athletes, of our events. Um, and that is definitely the best way to keep up to date with everything we have going on. It's such a great program because learning to read. I can remember in elementary school, there were kids who really struggled mightily at it, and I I would notice them improving during the course of the year. You know, if if a teacher in early elementary school would have us read out loud, and when they finally turned that corner and and began to do better at it, you could just see the the difference in their attitude. Yeah, I I mean, we we could just go on and on of the stories of what we've seen kids overcome, and also what we've as far as breakthroughs between student athletes and the eight-year-olds in second grade, um, a lot of the student athletes, they see themselves in these kids and they remember, you know, whether I had, you know, a learning disability or whether I just was frustrated with learning or whether, you know, I just didn't like to read. Well, there was a challenge that they overcame. And so these student athletes do a great job of telling the kids, you know, hang in there, keep trying, no matter what you want to do in your life, just don't don't give up. And we just want to be a role model and, and show you that we've been there, and it all starts right here, and you have great resources around you with your classmates and your teachers, and, um, and the kids are so resilient. I have to say, even this past year with all the challenges everybody saw, the kids are going to be fine. They're going to be fine because they're just so positive. And they're on these Zoom calls with us. Some have their little masks on, and they're um, interacting with the athletes and asking great questions and so curious about life. And it just gives us hope that, you know, everything's going to be okay. It's been an awfully difficult year, and just the, uh, the kind of positive vibes that are starting to show up really make it exciting, and especially for it to happen during the spring makes it even better. Everyone's excited. 
you know, and the fact that our partnership with Jersey Mike's for the month and the day of giving happens in the spring gets everybody excited. So um, we're so optimistic about what's to come and how this school year is going to end. Amy Hoying, Executive Director of the Second and Seven Foundation, secondandseven.com. Thanks so much for talking to us, and good luck as uh, as things get ramping back up. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. And thanks to Jersey Mike for the awesome support. As Amy talked about what they've been doing with Second and Seven, she mentioned Jersey Mike's subs. And uh, joining us right now is Steve Menick, who is an area developer and franchisee for Jersey Mike's. How you doing? Good, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us a little bit about Jersey Mike's in the area, how big it is, and how big it is nationally. So we have 23 stores in Columbus area and over 2,500 stores opened and in development nationwide. Wow, that's amazing. How long has the chain been around? It, it actually started as Mike Subs in 1956, so it's been around a long time. What is that, 65 years? Uh, Peter Kankro is the owner now, and he's owned it since he was 17. He bought the sub shop, Mike's sub shop, um, got a loan from his football coach, who happened to be a banker, and now, you know, since 87, they started franchising, and now it's, it's crazy. Look how many stores we have now. And what about your involvement? How long have you been involved? So I actually, uh, my partner Jeff and I, we actually went to Ohio State, graduated from Ohio State, got out in the corporate world for a couple of years here in Columbus, and we decided, you know, let's have some fun. We went down to Atlanta and opened the first store in Georgia in 1995. So it'll be 26 years in, in this July we've been involved with Jersey Mike Subs. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I have to ask you, this has certainly been a challenging year for the restaurant industry and just about everybody else. How are things going? Things are really well with us. Uh, you know, we, we're doing a lot of delivery, a lot of online orders, and we've obviously had to adjust our operations, you know, no dine-in for several months. Um, but I think we're doing well. You know, we're trying to keep people employed. Uh, and, you know, I think the customers that we have have been really, really um, supportive of how we're running our operations. Has it changed anything about the way you're going to do stuff in the future? I think so. I think, I think we're creating habits with, you know, online delivery, and you can order through our app, and, you know, all the third-party Uber Eats, DoorDash, that kind of stuff. I think it's pretty easy to go on your app on your phone and, and press the same sub you want and walk in and pick it up and walk out. I think it's definitely changed how we're going to do business going forward. Great. Talking with Steve Medic, he's uh, area developer and franchisee for Jersey Mike's Subs. Now, you are involved with Second and Seven, and this is your month of giving. Correct. Correct. So, you know, for the last, this is our 11th year nationwide, we've done a month of giving. Basically, in each market we are in nationwide, uh, we partner with a charity, and throughout the whole month, we try to raise money. You know, you can donate when you order an online order. You can come into the store. If you get a sub, you can donate. We, we kind of capitalize on the whole month when we go into March 31st of this year. It's a Wednesday. We donate 100% of our proceeds nationwide. But here in Columbus, 100% of our 23 stores' proceeds. This is not profit. This is if you buy a cookie, if it's, if it's 65 cents, that goes to second and seventh. So it's a huge day for us, and you can order, you know, a lot of people, I was talking to Amy the other day, Amy Hoyne was second to seven, and, and you know, order for frontline workers, you know, first responders, you know. Let's raise as much money as we can for second and seventh foundation. What is it about that foundation that made you want to help them? Well, first of all, I think they, do a, they just do a great job promoting, you know, reading literacy. 
Um, and they're, they're just a great company to work with. And that's so important in the development of a, any child. Um, and we just felt it was a great partnership. Um, they, they worked their tails off to promote uh, this month, obviously, and throughout the year. I mean, they're expanding, trying to get into as many second grade classes as they can to read to these kids in the, in the classroom. You know, when you think about uh, efforts like that to help the youth uh, in America, you could even take it to uh, an establishment like yours. Uh, so many kids in the area that are getting their first taste of the adult world by working at, at one of your places. Oh, I totally agree. And, you know, it's funny, though. I mean, we, we want to hire, you know, we'll hire, interview anybody, right? But we want to hire people that really are behind about giving back to the community. You know, when I got into this 26 years ago, you know, Peter Cancro, the owner of Jersey Mike's, basically said, hey, we're going to open this store, but we want you to get involved in the community and give back to the community. And 26 years later, we're doing the same thing. We're just doing it on a larger scale with many more stores nationwide. You know, it sounds like you really like what you're doing. Uh, I love it. You know, my wife, uh, we've been married 21 years. Many When we were dating, she's like, I'm glad she said this to me. She goes, I'm glad you like what you sell. And I go, First of all, it's a great sub, right? The highest quality meats and cheeses, you know, we slice our onion, lettuce, tomato, uh, make our own tuna, cook our own bread. And, you know, I eat it every day. If I'm in a store, I'm eating the sub. You know, and after 26 years, that says a lot, right? Yeah, and the aspect of getting back to the community and continue to get in the high schools. And, hey, you know, we do so much throughout the year, not only with second and seven, but we try to get involved in as much as we can. Steve Menick again joining us, area developer and franchisee for Jersey Mike's Subs. So 23 stores, where are they? 23 in Columbus. Yeah, we go from, uh, we have one in Circleville, Grove City, up to Mount Vernon, and Powell, and Marysville. We're all over the place. So probably another, you know, we grow about three to five a year forward, we will, in Columbus. That's great. And again, uh, Steve, if folks want to help out now, uh, tell us, step us through how they can do that. Well, throughout this month, you know, we've got a few weeks left. You know, if you order through the app, um, you can donate through the app if you do an online order. If you come into the store, we have a roundup function function on our POS. You can you can round up your order to donate thirty cents or fifty cents, or, or you can just come in and donate one, three, five, as much as you want, right right in the store. Um, and then, you know, like I said, I mean, March thirty first, that Wednesday. We're going to be crazy, and, and we want to be crazy. The busier we are, the better, because that's the more money we raise for second and seven. It's outstanding. Steve, uh, thanks so much for your time. Anything else you'd like to add? Oh, that's it. I just want to say, you know, it's been a great partnership with second and seven. They do just a tremendous job, and we're excited to, you know, this is our sixth year partnering up with them. And, uh, you know, last year was cut. You know, if you remember this time last year, COVID kind of hit and shut everything down. So, you know, we're really excited. We want our goal this year is to raise a hundred thousand dollars. So please come in this month and on Wednesday, March thirty first, and help us hit that goal. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Steve, and and good luck as the pandemic hopefully begins to lift here. Appreciate the time, Dave. Thank you. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. Hey, this is Kevin Love from the Cleveland Cavaliers. At times, life can feel scary. 
which can leave us hurting and feeling overwhelmed with anxiety. Now, more than ever, we need to be kind to ourselves, kind to our mental health, and find some time and space in these tough times. Mindfulness is something that's helped me, and I hope it can help you too. My nonprofit is partnering with Headspace to offer you free content that can ease those feelings of anxiety. It's as easy to do as this. Take a big, deep breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth. In and out. Just breathing. In and out. Head to kevinlovefun.org slash headspace and be kind to your mind. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. A path back to normal. That's what Governor Mike DeWine laid out for Ohioans. What he says needs to happen to drop the state's COVID-19 health orders. And hundreds of thousands more in Ohio now qualify to get the COVID-19 vaccine. But will there be enough to go around? Plus, we look into just how much money the state made from finding bar owners during the pandemic and where that money is going. We do want to first say thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Governor Mike DeWine announced a plan to fully reopen Ohio. 10TV's Richard Solomon breaks down the governor's plan and just how close we are to that finish line. When Ohio gets down to 50 cases, for 100,000 people for two weeks. All health orders in the state will come off. And now, finishing the task. Governor Mike DeWine announcing the path back to normalcy. DeWine says Ohioans have been doing everything right so far. Our path back is by continuing forward, by wearing that mask and by getting that vaccine. DeWine says there's no timetable on when we could hit that goal. But the path back can be achieved if Ohioans keep wearing masks in public places and if people choose to get vaccinated. The end of our fight is now in view. But we must continue pressing forward in these final days. And the governor, just like you and me, is looking forward to many things returning like proms, graduations and baseball. And he says we're almost there. For now, reporting at the State House, Richard Solomon, 10TV News. The White House COVID-19 response team says we'll have enough vaccines for all adults by the end of May. But it's important to note that experts say there's a difference between having enough vaccines and getting those into people's arms. Ohio Health says the state needs to prepare for how to distribute the influx of doses to people who might have language or transportation barriers. At Ohio Health, we have mobile health clinics that we are going to repurpose into delivering vaccines to various communities. We may even have a, a bus or some way where we can give vaccines on a Friday or Saturday night in the short north and high street. We need all ideas 
of getting vaccines into people's arms. That's Dr. Joseph Gastaldo with Ohio Health. He's optimistic for a return to a new normal as long as the state plans for more vaccines and people stay motivated to get them. We know many of you have questions about what it will actually be like to get the vaccine. 10TV's Angela Reiger talked with two Ohioans who received two different shots. Two people, two vaccines. Let's start with Barbara Smallenberger. They said I was the first in, in, in the country. Barbara got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The 86-year-old says it's the one she wanted. Johnson & Johnson was the name, and I trusted that name, and I prayed about it and prayed about it, and I just felt that God was telling me to wait on this this vaccine. Now to Colonel Richard S. Fambro. And it didn't matter to me which one. The superintendent of the Ohio State Highway Patrol got his vaccine, Moderna. I was one of the people that said, there's no way I'm going to take a vaccine. I just, I had made up my mind. Um, But, you know, as time goes and you see the, the toll, you see the death, you see the, the long haulers that are still dealing with the effects of COVID and you see the many ways and facets in which it, it affects uh, people around you um, and you see that, I think it changes, it changed my lens. Both Barbara and Colonel Fambro say actually getting the vaccine wasn't bad at all. Great nurses that uh, partnered to, to uh, make the process smooth and painless. I didn't get sick um, all night long. I slept so well. My arm is a teensy, teensy sore, but it's only when I touch it. Any temporary pain doesn't outweigh that personal gain. I have six children and 15 grandchildren. I have 10 granddaughters and five grandsons. And my mom, you know, is a breast cancer survivor, so um, I have not been able to hug her for, you know, it's been almost a year. For both, one shot means one step closer to seeing those they love. Reporting in Columbus, Angela Rigard, 10TV News. It's been almost a year since the Ohio Investigative Unit started cracking down on bars that didn't enforce social distancing rules or mask wearing. Those rules also kept bars from serving alcohol after 10 or 11 at night. Kevin Landers is downtown with a closer look at just how much money the state collected. The state began citing bars for violating the health orders around mid-March, and many of those bars were cited for failing to social distance patrons. According to the latest data from the Ohio Investigative Unit, of the 30,000 visits to bars since March of last year, only 377 citations were issued. Here's what else we found. As of February 26th, the state has collected $149,000 in fines. Among the bars in Franklin, Delaware, Ross, and Licking County, the total fines amounted to only $15,850. The average length of a suspension for a license was nine days. Agents say social distancing, not mask wearing, continues to be the biggest problem. The Ohio Investigative Unit has no set guidelines as far as how long our agents have to remain at a location to to observe a violation. However, uh, most of these violations are egregious to the point that you walk through the door, uh, you can clearly tell that there are crowds around the bars, crowds around the tables, you know, people are in there shoulder to shoulder. With St. Patrick's Day just around the corner, agents say they'll be out in force to make sure those health orders are followed. Reporting near downtown, Kevin Landers, 10TV News. The country is remembering the civil rights leader and close advisor to former President Bill Clinton, 
Vernon Jordan. He was 85. He was a past president of the National Urban League and became a prominent civil rights activist known to work with political leaders on both sides of the aisle, from Lyndon Johnson to Barack Obama. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of the 3rd District reacted to the passing of Jordan. She tweeted, sending light and love to his family and friends. Rest in peace. The Congressional Black Caucus said Jordan motivated an entire generation of leaders and set an example that is followed today. And Michael Coleman, the first black mayor and longest serving mayor for the city of Columbus, remembered Jordan saying, quote, he kicked open the door for black folks in corporate America and in particular corporate boardrooms. He will be greatly missed. The state is looking for a new leader to handle all of the unemployment claims. Up next, why the director of the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services is stepping down. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My, my son shot his brother. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. I get it. Your desk has been there for you. Holding up your computer, your unused stapler, and that plant you forgot to water. But maybe it's time to leave your desk and spend your lunch break volunteering with Meals on Wheels. Doing Meals on Wheels for me is the joy that I look for at the end of my week. I'll come to the door with one meal and I'll walk away with a full heart. Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion pandemic relief gives some Americans another stimulus check. The bill also provides money for vaccine distribution, school aid, and billions to help veterans gain access to health care. 10TV's Kevin Landers, excuse me, spoke with U.S. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about it. How are we paying for this? There are some investments you can't afford not to make, and this is a good example of that. Uh, you know, when you have a crisis, whether it's a war or a public health emergency, you've got to act quickly. Now, the good news is interest rates are low. It's actually uh, a comparatively flexible time for us to be able to take this action. $1.9 trillion. Where does that money come from? We're just printing well, money? Well, again, I mean, all, all through uh, human history and certainly through U.S. history, there have been times when it is prudent to make an investment using the resources of the Treasury to support the economy. Uh, so, uh, you know, the U.S. is good for it. We, we know how to do this. And uh, at the same time, there's a very serious, very grave risk to our economy if we don't do enough. In a $20 trillion economy, if we want to continue growing, we've got to make sure we act to stop the greatest threats to our prosperity. And that's what the American Rescue Plan is about. 
COVID-19 has certainly exposed our nation as being an underfunded healthcare network. Um, wouldn't you agree? There's no question that uh, we need to do more when it comes to healthcare in this country, not just the general availability of healthcare, but also equity in health. Uh, you know, we, the uh, disparities in the different communities, uh, for example, how people of color are more vulnerable to this disease, even though the virus itself doesn't discriminate by race, our country and our society have, and it shows in the numbers. So now's a chance to do something about that. We can't fix everything right now, but the rescue plan is how we get through this incredibly dangerous season where we've got some good signs, but we're not out of the woods. We've got to get vaccines into arms. We've got to reopen communities safely. We've got to get kids back in school. We've got to get dollars out to families so they can get by. Then we've got some uh, longer term, bigger issues to deal with as a country. And I think dealing with those is part of why the American people uh, sent President Biden and, and created this uh, Biden-Harris administration to get it done. One of the things that this um American Rescue Plan will address is health for veterans. Can you talk about what specific issues veterans in particular are facing? And here in our county, in Franklin County, we have a very high number of, of veterans living in here. How will this address their issues as, in terms of access to health care? Well, I don't think of doing by doing right by veterans as uh, doing anyone a favor. I think of it as keeping a promise. We're talking about people who put their lives on the line to protect this country, and we've got to make sure that this country supports them, and that's a promise that lasts a lifetime. Specifically, when it comes to this package, there are $17 billion to support veterans who uh, often are especially at risk when it comes to COVID, especially when you look at things like the state-run veterans' homes, which uh, this bill includes a lot of resources to support. It's about helping the VA get the P, uh, the PPE and, and uh, the resources they need to uh, continue treating patients who have COVID and uh, critically to be uh, an important part of that vaccination effort. And another thing that we're seeing is indications that there are some veterans who've had things like their uh, pension and, and, and claims process is actually slowed down or stopped because of they were interrupted by COVID and the lockdown, the pandemic and everything that happened. So there's resources to take care of that too. Uh, this is a good example of why so many different pieces are all connected together. We've learned it across our society in the last year, that's reflected in a bill that really goes to so many of the root causes of why people are hurting right now. Is the understanding that this American Rescue Plan will take us into 2025 and beyond, or how long will this money last? Do we know? Well, this is really about getting us through the immediate season of danger, the emergency that we're in. Although, uh, you know, it would be foolish, of course, to uh, pass a bill that doesn't look to the future. And so you'll see some elements that are thinking ahead. For example, uh, it's so important that we get kids back in school safely. And you're going to see some planning for the 21-22 school year, which is, uh, of course, just around the corner, in addition to what we've got to do right away. But uh, again, this is part of a, a, a two-step process. Step one, rescue get us out of the woods. Step two, take on a lot of the bigger things that President Biden was elected to do, including, I'm looking forward to, a lot of work on infrastructure that really will position America to compete for the long run, not just into 2025, but hopefully into the 2050s and beyond. Again, that was Kevin Landers reporting. The state is looking for a new leader of its Department of Job and Family Services. Kim Henderson stepped down. She was appointed to lead that agency back in January of 2019. There's certainly been a lot of questions about security within the agency and the timeliness of getting jobless benefits to Ohioans. Henderson is recently married, and she and her husband are moving to North Carolina. They handle cases like those against former Speaker of the House, 
The federal charges against former Columbus police officer Andrew Mitchell and investigations like that of Casey Goodson's deadly shooting. And now there is a new acting leader at the U.S. Attorney's Office overseeing those cases. Vapol Patel is now the acting U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Ohio. This move comes after Dave DeVillers resigned. 10TV's Lacey Crisp sat down with DeVillers to discuss the future of the office and his advice for his successor. Uh, it sucks, but I, uh, you know, I, I know the office is in good hands. Dave DeVillers is open about the fact it wasn't his choice to leave the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Ohio. I still think you know, that's what this job's really about, is, is the cases. As an ambitious and aggressive prosecutor who has received death threats because of his work, he jokes about his next challenge. I start asking out of school in a couple weeks. Yeah. So that'd be great. DeVillers was appointed to the position by former President Donald Trump in November 2019. While he's only been in the position a short time, he's been a prosecutor for decades, first with the Franklin County Prosecutor's Office and as an assistant U.S. attorney. And I've been here for forever, and when I became U.S. attorney, I still, I'm still learning. DeVillers is known for prosecuting gangs and bringing down the short North Posse. He says while he supports police, he is not afraid to prosecute officers who've not followed the law. I think the vast majority of police, that I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Columbus Police Department, but if you, uh, you commit crimes, you commit um, civil rights violations, you get, you get prosecuted. DeVillers says in the next few years, he sees the office will focus on major problems with violent crime and fentanyl that are linked with the cartel. He says he has advice for the next person to sit in his chair. I will leave a letter. That's kind of tradition within the, in the office as well. But um, to, be, to be apolitical, to be aggressive, and to listen to the AUSAs who know what they're doing. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. The deadline to apply for the U.S. attorney position closed in February. Senator Sherrod Brown's office tells Lacey that 12 people applied for that job. The senator's office will now work with a selection commission to narrow it down. Senator Brown will submit a nomination to the U.S. Senate, and they will vote on that nomination. Well, it's hard to imagine, but it's been four years since the murder of Ohio State student Reagan Tokes, and lawmakers are still working to pass legislation that would fix gaps in the state's parole system first uncovered by 10 investigates. House lawmakers Kristen Boggs and Rick Carfagna refiled the Reagan-Tokes Act this week. Tokes, you may remember, was kidnapped, raped, and murdered in February of 2017 by a convicted sex offender who had recently been released from prison. Despite wearing a GPS ankle monitor, the state's adult parole authority failed to closely monitor Brian Goldsby. Ten investigates reporting proved gaps in the system existed and that the state for years has failed to closely monitor other violent offenders. The Reagan-Tokes Act calls on state corrections officials to reduce parole officer caseloads, set guidelines for GPS monitoring of offenders, and create a re-entry program for violent or sexual offenders who are often rejected from halfway houses. They've spent nearly every day of the past year fighting against the coronavirus. Up next, we check in with firefighters, nurses, and funeral directors about the toll it's taking working on the front lines. Not on my watch, our military service members say, as they volunteer to serve, as they move out, stand firm, and take fire. So not on our watch, we say, to the severely ill or injured veterans who can't get the care they deserve to live full and independent lives, even when there's no government funding or a nursing home seems like the only option. We won't leave one warrior behind. 
not on our watch. Join us at findwwp.org. People join Walk MS to raise awareness and funds that change the world for everyone affected by multiple sclerosis. Walk MS brings communities together, creating teams with friends, loved ones, and coworkers to rally around those we care about and end MS forever. Together, we can change the world for people with MS. Register today at walkms.org. Okay, so maybe you didn't finish or broke your New Year's resolution to get to the gym or start that project you had kept on the back burner since, well, okay, the dawn of time. I get it. That's okay. But you know, there's one thing you can do to get back that inspiration, that can-do spirit. Perhaps you or someone you know has a vehicle that they don't drive anymore. Why not consider donating it to the National Federation of the Blind? All you have to do is call 866-282-7327. That's 866-282-7327. You can also log online to nfb.org and click donate. And maybe you know someone that's blind. You can reach out to nfb at nfb.org. That's nfb at nfb.org. So what do you have to lose? You have everything to gain by helping someone in need, like your motivation. Oh, and a tax deduction. So why not get started today? And remember, charity is only a phone call away. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. More and more students across central Ohio will go back into the classroom full time, but there's really no date set for Delaware City Schools. The school board considered it, but then decided to keep students in that hybrid learning model for the rest of the school year. Not all parents are happy about the decision. Kids just want to be back with other kids. For one of my children, he's getting a half year of education. And to me, as a parent, that's unacceptable. Um, I don't blame the teachers. They're doing their best. The district superintendent says they are focusing on a full return to class this fall. The Ohio Senate will take up a bill allowing extra time for students to take state tests. But here's the catch. Standardized exams must be taken in person. Students cannot take them remotely or over the summer. And then test results wouldn't count toward graduation or a school's state ranking. It would also eliminate the American history exam and give two more weeks for paper exams for other subjects. One year since our state began that battle with COVID-19. For those on the front lines of the pandemic, it's been a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job that's required them to comfort families at their worst moments. They work to keep you safe while also putting their own lives at risk. Kevin Lander's back now with the look at the front lines. My name is Scott Underwood, and uh, my wife Holly and I own our own funeral home, Underwood Funeral Home, here in Marysville, Ohio. As a frontline worker in a COVID-19 world, we're gowning up, we're double masking, we're even face shielding. Going to work means going to war against the coronavirus. Half to most of the uh, families we served, um, we had deceased who were COVID positive. January was also the month Underwood says he saw more bodies in his morgue than ever before. It's been very hard. Inside hospitals like Ohio Health Riverside Methodist, where vaccinations went first. It's definitely been a challenge, definitely mentally, physically, psychologically, just exhausting. 
ICU nurse Dara Pence says the revolving door of COVID-19 patients has taken a toll on her team. You see your team struggle, you see each other struggle, and trying to be that support person, but also realizing sometimes you just can't be because you're also going through the same. Stopping the virus from spreading inside hospitals meant stopping the public from coming inside to visit their loved ones. That left nurses, not family, to be there when the most serious COVID patients took their last breaths. The hardest part for our teams is the emotional side of it. As a frontline worker, Pence describes working with COVID-19 as living in the gray, a term used to describe the unknowns associated with this invisible enemy. How do we care for these patients? How do we, you know, what... What exactly are the long-term effects? What are the short-term effects? As a mother of two, Penn says initially she slept in a separate bed at home, worried she could spread the virus to her family. Now, almost a year since the first COVID case hit Ohio, I asked her if she's hopeful or skeptical about the future, even with a vaccine. Skepticism. (laughs) Um, Because who knows? Who knows if, you know, these vaccines, how long will they work? How well will they work? Um, You know, We're hoping, um, but we're also hoping that people heed the advice of, yes, get your vaccine, but also still wear a mask. Firefighters and paramedics are often the first to come into contact with COVID patients. In the beginning, we had about 14% of our calls were uh, COVID-related, and now we're down to about 3%. Jackson Township Fire Department in Grove City. Every unit that transports a COVID-19 patient gets disinfected with an electrostatic sprayer full of chemicals the department says can kill the virus. This is ground zero for COVID-19 cases in Franklin County. The zip code where this fire department is located is 43123. It has the highest number of COVID-19 cases in all of Franklin County, more than 6,000 cases since the pandemic started. That ranks at the third highest in the entire state. We wanted to know why. It turns out there isn't one reason. I would think that we're testing more people in the 43123 uh, than maybe many communities, but I can't say for sure. One year into the pandemic, these first responders at the front of the line and at the end of the line continue to do their jobs despite the dangers. It's clear to them it's going to take all of us to win the war against COVID-19. We have to come together as a community. We have to fight together as a community against this unknown, unseen virus. Kevin Landers, 10 TV News. According to the state health department, 6% of the healthcare workers have tested positive for COVID-19 since the pandemic started. That's more than 56,000 people. Let's turn now to today's note of promise. Masks are recognized as key to protecting others from respiratory droplets and COVID-19. And now they are central to a mental health movement. Mask on, mood up comes from the OSU College of Nursing. It's about having your mask on in the pandemic and maintaining good mental health or improving your mental health, especially now with many, many people feeling pandemic fatigue. Ohio State University College of Nursing Dean Bernadette Melnick told me the entire plan is evidence-based, helpful to people of all ages, and requires you to stop and breathe using the 578 method. Inhale five seconds, hold it for seven, and then exhale for eight seconds. You do that every time you put on your mask to help cut stress. You mask on, you mood up. It also incorporates self-affirmation. So perhaps you say, I'm too blessed to be stressed ten times, for example. Then it 
it requires you to also show gratitude, which includes being kind to others and friends being kind to yourself. We do thank you for being here with us today for Face the State. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Dedicated to the conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. And countless endangered species. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and March is National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And joining me on the phone is Dr. Sapna Thomas, a gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. We're going to talk about colorectal cancer and also the trend of younger women uh, being diagnosed with colon cancer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, a recent study came out uh, looking at women, especially under the age of 50, diagnosed with colorectal cancer across the country. And what they found is that women in certain zip codes in, in counties were dying at a higher rate than other women. And so they found some interesting facts that sometimes physical inactivity or lower fertility, as well as race and ethnicity, may play a role in that. So that is definitely concerning that we need to do better as far as screening not only uh, women, but men and maybe at younger ages. And some of those areas are in Ohio, right? That is correct. Uh, Hamilton County, um, which includes Cincinnati, as well as uh, multiple northeastern Ohio counties are included in those hotspots. What is perhaps the biggest risk factor that might be uh, part of this? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into the risk of colon cancer. Sometimes family history um, and genetics play a role. Um, However, you know, diet may play some role in colorectal cancer, although those are not clearly defined. But as we see our Western diet change, as we see increasing rates of obesity, um, even smoking can um, all play a role in the risk of, of having colon cancer. I knew a woman who unfortunately passed away from colorectal cancer who was in her late 30s, and I remember reading that that this sort of thing is becoming more common. It was almost unheard of decades ago. That is correct. We are seeing uh, recent studies uh, have noted an increasing incident in colon cancer in younger adults, and that's why current recommendations are uh, recommending to decrease the age of initial screening to 45. Um, We do see that younger patients diagnosed with colon cancer tend to have more aggressive disease than those that are diagnosed at older ages. But um, ideally, you know, the earlier we can screen and screen the larger population of people, then the sooner we can find the precancerous polyps, remove them, and hopefully even prevent colon cancer in those patients. And you're concerned also because of the coronavirus that most people have for the last year uh, not been getting those kind of checkups. That is correct. I mean, with coronavirus and a lot of things being shut down, um, people not being at work, and also the fear of coming into a center or two that they might um, get the virus, um, it's important to remember that, you know, screening and health care, it's still important to maintain those screening tests, and um, colon cancer should not be put to the back burner because everybody needs to be screened. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. What is the biggest 
symptom, even if it's subtle? What is it that people are, are not paying attention to? I think the most common symptom that people tend to ignore is probably blood in the stool, which a common cause of that is hemorrhoids. However, um, without knowing for sure, it's important to um, talk to your provider and potentially get um, a colonoscopy to evaluate that bleeding to make sure that it isn't a polyp or a tumor that might be bleeding. Patients can also have um, change in bowel habits, abdominal pain or rectal pain that's new um, or unexpected weight loss. And, you know, even those symptoms should all be uh, discussed with their provider and considered having a colonoscopy, but even people who don't have any symptoms can still have a large polyp or a tumor um, that um, could be could become worrisome. I know that the, the individual case will vary, but what is more alarming, uh, fresh, bright red blood in the stools or black tarry stools? Well, um, fresh, bright red blood is considered um, coming from lower in the GI tract, and so hemorrhoids or even tumors that might be lower in the rectum or distal um, part of the colon uh, can have more brighter blood. However, blood that might be darker or might not even be visible may be coming from up higher in the colon on the right side of the colon. Okay, and, and what about testing? Has less invasive testing made inroads of, in recent years? There are some available um, less invasive testings. Um, however, you know, the recent recommendations from the American College of Gastroenterology just it talks about uh, first one-step testing, which would be the colonoscopy, because we can also find polyps, remove them, and prevent colon cancer, versus the two-step, which does have some initial testing that might be less invasive, such as stool-based tests or um, CT colonography, which is a CAT scan type of test, a colon capsule, um, or even just a flexible sigmoidoscopy. But the issue with those tests is that if they're positive, you still need a colonoscopy. And patients should check with their insurance company about the potential cost of this two-step program. Okay, and I did want to ask you one other thing about symptoms. Is pain generally a, a symptom of this? And, and if so, is it does that happen early enough to, to catch it in time? Well, symptoms of colon cancer generally start to arise as the tumor grows or either causes an obstruction or um, invades the wall of the colon. So the earlier uh, that we can find it when it's still a polyp, which generally has no symptoms, is important to, to consider. Abdominal pain can be from a lot of different causes. Um, obviously, colon cancer is one of the more um, concerning reasons, and so talking to your provider as far as your symptoms and how new they are will help um, guide uh, further evaluation. And what about treatment and prognosis? So we are seeing uh, mortality rates decreasing the colon cancer, and part of that is related to early detection, um, better screening, um, as well as better surgical and treatment options for colon cancer. So the mortality rate is definitely decreasing since the 1980s. Um, but the issues we discussed earlier is, is finding younger people with more advanced cancers um, earlier that we need to uh, try to address better. Talking with Dr. Sapna Thomas, gastroenterologist with University Hospitals of Cleveland. So what would be the biggest advice you could give to, to women or anybody who may be at risk? Well, we do feel the best screening is the one that gets completed. So despite us only screening about 60% of adults across the country, I would, my best advice is to talk to your provider, get screened um, any which way you're willing to. Obviously, we believe in colonoscopy for both prevention and screening, um, but um, any symptoms or even no symptoms, if you're over the age of 45, um, consider getting screened. And uh, is there a website you're uh, advising folks to check out? Yes, I would definitely recommend going to gi.org slash colon cancer for more information for the American College of Gastroenterology. Okay, Dr. Thomas in Cleveland, thanks so much for the information. Thank you for your time. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.